Thank you. That was the Tavares family, by the way. They serve with InterVarsity and have been doing a good job building relationships, trying to uh, share the gospel on some of the campuses, primarily um, UOG. So if you have your Bible, you could turn to the Gospel of Luke. We are going to be looking at a section of scripture in Luke. And I titled the message, The Mission of Christmas, and if, if you ever watch uh, any shows, sometimes when you're partway through, you have to deal with the previously on, and uh, sometimes we just skip that. That's what we're going to do. can't skip it, because uh, I'm here, I'm going to tell you. Previously on The Mission of Christmas, we covered that um, God gave a mission to Mary. Now, my hope is through this month, this Christmas season, that we will look at the Christmas story and see missions in it. And as we look at the Christmas story in the first half of the message, the second half of the message, we're going to jump over to the book of Acts, and we're looking at the Antioch church. And we're going to see that the mission of Christmas, which I put it up there, Matthew 1, 21, she will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He gave a mission to Mary. She is going to be the mother of that Christ child, that Savior. And then we see as we move into Acts, the mission of Christmas unfold as salvation comes in the form of the gospel going through God's church. Acts 11, we reach a point where it says in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. And that's kind of the context of how we're moving through our messages in December. Now, let me read to you our section of Scripture here, and uh, then we're going to take a look at it. But last week, before I read it, just how is God going to accomplish His mission? Well, last week we saw He's going to do it through ordinary people. He came to Mary. He came to Joseph. He gave them that, 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 uh, that mission. Who were they in the sea of humanity, who were they? How did they stand out in the, the Jewish nation? And the reality is he saw something inside of them. And he came to regular people. He said, you're one of the most important missions ever. And he gave it to them. And then when we jump over to, the, to Antioch, the uh, other half, what we saw was the church was stuck in Jerusalem. It was almost all Jewish, and yet it was a mega church. How, how big does a church have to get before it can accomplish the Great Commission to go into every nation. It was stuck in Jerusalem. And in Antioch, we see the first label, Christians, because people were leaving out of Jerusalem. And as they went, they would not talk to anyone about the gospel if they weren't Jewish, except in Antioch. It's where they first began to talk. And you see this non-Jewish, this Gentile church began to grow. But the people who walked into Antioch and shared the gospel. We don't know their names. They were just uh, anonymous servants, God using ordinary people again to accomplish His mission. That was the first uh, point, the first sermon. And what I'm going to add to that today, how will God accomplish His mission? He uses ordinary people with agents of encouragement. And I'm using this word agent because it's like God has a mission. He's going to send an agent out into that field to accomplish something. And that's what we're going to see today. He gives a mission to Mary. He, gives, he uses anonymous servants in Antioch. But folded into the accomplishment of his mission are this, this important role of supporters in the form of encouragement. Encouraging those who have been called to a specific mission. And that is the focus for today. Agents of encouragement. So read with me, if you will, Luke 1, 39 to 45, as we get into this message. It says, In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of, should be my, 
Lord, should come to me, for behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Father, I just pray as we look at your word today that your spirit would open our eyes, that we would see within your Christmas story and in the story of Antioch, how you use servants faithful to you to encourage those you've given important missions to. And I pray that you would call within our own church people forward who can be agents of encouragement. And we lift this up in Christ's name. Now, the first thing I just ask is what is going on in the situation? Because if you just go back a few verses, you have Mary being told you're going to have a a child. She says, how is it possible? I'm a virgin, which we looked at a little bit last week. And then he says, also, your relative, Elizabeth, is is already, she's having a baby. And that's important because she was already, she's an older woman. She's already beyond uh, the ability to give babies. She was an older, but that's part of the miracle story in the, in the Christmas story is Elizabeth as well. And he, te- he says that to Mary. And now Mary is where we pick up, is going to go visit Elizabeth. That's the situation. She comes into um, the house. And so she's traveled. It says she goes with haste. So she leaves with haste. It's important. I got to go see Elizabeth. She enters into the house and has a greeting, right? In Guam, we'd say, half a day. You'd walk in, maybe, right? Not here. Shalom. There's the greeting. And when Elizabeth hears it, it, the sound of shalom, whatever the greeting was, shalom, comes to the ears. This is where we're picking up the, the context of the situation. She immediately knows. And so the response, this is what I want to focus on. What kind of response do we have from Elizabeth that ends up being an encouragement to Mary? Because just remember, Mary's young, most likely a teenager, pregnant. The cultural implication of that, her, remember last week her husband, not yet actually husband, betrothed, promised. We said, we have plans. They had plans. We're going to get married. God comes into our plans sometimes and gives us something else. It interrupts our plans. We talked about that last week. Mary still has to grapple with that. Joseph was grappling with that, we saw, because in the account of Joseph, the angel comes and says to him, this is from God, because he was thinking, maybe I'll divorce her. He's a good man. I'll do it quietly. I don't want her to be embarrassed publicly. Imagine Mary's starting to show, and people are like, they're not even Mary. How, I'm doing the math in my head. The cultural implications that Mary was having to deal with, not only that, but also the fact that, hello, your child is from God. Like, where's the playbook on that? And she has to grapple with that. And she moves with haste to go see her relative Elizabeth. Also, miracle child, because... She shouldn't be having a baby. She's too old. And that's the context of where we're going to get this little scene and draw some things from about encouragement. And the first point I want to make to be an agent of encouragement, we see this in Elizabeth, is she's spirit-filled. She is spirit-filled. How is she going to to give encouragement? By being spirit-filled. Let me go back to 41. It says, And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, somebody might ask, Pastor, what does that mean, to be filled with the Holy Spirit? And I would say to you, in the church age, which means in the New Testament, from Acts on, it has, there's a, a way to answer that, and it would be that when you become a believer in Christ, when you put your faith in Christ, when you hear the gospel message that, that I am a sinner, I'm in rebellion to God, I'm going to be judged for that. The wages of sin is death, and that Christ paid that penalty of death for me. And you believe in that, and you put your faith in that. Salvation is found through that. And when you become a believer in that gospel message, in the work of Christ, the the Bible says that the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you, to dwell. That's the word. The word dwell is like, like I use the example, you pitch a tent and then the, it's a, it becomes a dwelling place, to use the, 
Old Testament idea. And they, you go in and you're in the tent. You're living in the tent. The Holy Spirit dwells within you. That's the third person of the Trinity, God living inside of you. Every believer in Christ. Now, that, that would be New Testament. But see, in the Old Testament, and we're kind of in between because Mary, there's no church yet. Mary and Elizabeth, this story, we've just come out of the Old Testament. What does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? And there's an answer for that in the Old Testament. Because see, in the New Testament, the church era, when the Holy Spirit comes to live within you, it's part of the salvation process. That dwelling puts you into the family of God. It seals you, Paul says, your salvation. And it's permanent. He lives within you forever. But in the Old Testament, that did not exist in the same way. The Holy Spirit could come and dwell within you, but the Holy Spirit could leave. It's like I went into the tent, I'm there for a while, and then I leave. And you think about stories like Samson, where it says the Spirit came upon him. And in that moment, he did something. He became strong, and he ripped a gate off, and he, he, it's like he had Superman strength, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And that's what the Spirit would do. The Spirit would come into people and empower them in moments, sometimes wisdom and decision-making with Samson's strength. During our sermon on Thanksgiving, I put a verse up on the screen, a psalm that David wrote, create in me a clean heart, O God. He had been convicted of his sin with Bathsheba, and the song he wrote in response was, create in me a clean heart, O God. But there's a line in that Psalms that says, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Like the Spirit was dwelling and now it's gone. Just like in Samson, when he broke his vow, it says the Spirit left him. There was a correlation between being filled with the Spirit and being right with God. And David's words imply that I cannot be right with God and the Spirit is taken. But I would never pray that today because it's not like that now. The dwelling of the Holy Spirit is not dependent upon your ability to be righteous. It's to empower you to live righteously. And there's a permanence of the Holy Spirit within you. I want to show you this this verse that comes from John chapter 14. This is the high priestly prayer of Christ. He's, he's with his disciples. Look what he says. He says, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. That is the Spirit. To be with you, what's it say? Forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you, and his future tense will be in you. And I think that is one of the best places to understand the difference between the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament and the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. In the, only, in the, in the Old Testament, he was with you. In the New Testament, he is in you. He dwells within you. Now, I think this is a moment where we can see theology in this, and that is that Elizabeth was a woman of faith, and the Holy Spirit was with her and empowered her to see something in that moment. I'm going to come back to that, but I make the first point. How are you an agent of encouragement? And and part of the answer is to be Spirit-filled. Okay, I'll come back to that, but let me show you the next thing, which is agent of encouragement, Elizabeth. She's being spirit-filled, but also being encouraging with her words. She hears it with her ears, and what comes out of her mouth? Verse 42 says this, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, which I thought was interesting, right? Because how often do you talk in your house with loud cries, unless you're a parent and your child's done something they shouldn't? 
But this is a good reason. She exclaims with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Now, in that moment, it's got to be so encouraging to Mary. All of the scenario that I laid out earlier, the pressures of, of culture, and, and, the, and there's no book written on how to do this. You know, the, the mother of, our, of the Lord, and she's walking into the house, and her relative is saying something to her, blessed are you. Don't ever forget that. Whatever God has called you to, you are blessed to be called to that. In everything, give thanks, right? Our Thanksgiving message. You should always be thankful, no matter the situation. Here's Mary. The pressures could rob her of that. Blessed are you. There's a way in what she's, what she's saying to her is lifting her up. Be reminded of that. Blessed are you. And she throws herself in. Why is this granted to me? The mother of my Lord should come to me. And that, that verse takes me to the next point, which she's being discerning of the situation. Because what she's saying to her, why is this granted to me? The mother of my Lord should come to me. Meaning that the child in you is from the Lord. You're the mother of the Lord. That's what she's saying. Blessed are you. You're carrying the Lord. How does she know that? She just walked in. There's the... How does she know? Because she's spirit-filled. And she, God's letting her see something in a spiritual way. She's discerning spiritually there. See, that's what the Holy Spirit does for you. The primary role of the Holy Spirit dwelling within you is to give you spiritual discernment in life, in God's Word. I want to take you to 2 Corinthians 2. I'm going to read it. I want you to listen. It's going, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 2. 1 Corinthians and it's going to explain the role of the Spirit. Here's what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 10. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual, and then he says this, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not spiritually discerning. Do you see the contrast there? First of all, he says, do you see the role of the Spirit? No one knows the thoughts of God, but the Spirit of the God, and he, ser and, and he searches. And then Paul says, we're given the Spirit. We don't have the Spirit of the the wisdom of the world. We have the Spirit of God in us, and He teaches us, and He helps us see and understand spiritual things. Sometimes when I'm grappling with the Word of God, I just go to the Spirit and say, help me see this. It's like if it's absolute darkness and you cannot see, and there's one person that has the flashlight, and they turn it on. That light can be seen in the darkness, and you can take that light and shine it where you, where you want them to see what you want them to see. And the Holy Spirit works like that within you. He's like a light. And He says, I want you to see this. The Spirit of God living in you allows you to see things with greater spiritual eyes. That's why He says, the world, people who do not have the Spirit of God, if you're not a believer, you cannot understand the Spirit of God. You cannot understand spiritual things. You're not discerning. You don't have that work within you. And part of what, what I want you to see in this Christmas message 
is that Elizabeth was spirit-filled. And when Mary came in and the words came to her ear, shalom, whatever it was, the greeting, she knew. The baby leaped and she discerned what it meant. And I'll even add this because uh, John MacArthur made this comment. He said, even the baby was spirit-filled in that moment, which says something about the reality of a fetus within the womb, doesn't it? It's not just a blob of material. It's a person. And it was filled with the Spirit, and it was discerning in that moment. And Elizabeth understood it. The Holy Spirit helped her see that. Now, because of that, she can affirm Mary and her mission. In verse 45, she says this, And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And there's a way in which you land right there, and it's like what God is doing is true. The mission is from Him. To have, that is a statement of faith. What He gave to you, true, and you believed it, it says a lot about the faith. So what we get from, this is what we get from Elizabeth's encouragement of Mary, encouraging words, I'm going to lift you up and I'm going to affirm you in your faithfulness of, of faithful response to God. But not only that, it brings out joy and and worship from Mary. The very next words, we know them as Mary's Magnificat. It's a worship song that comes out of Mary. And I can't read you the whole thing, but look at her response. Mary says, and Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. That's what's coming out of her soul, out of her mouth. Why? Because of what Elizabeth has done for her. And What I want to do is I want to show you in the Christmas story how God accomplishes His mission. And so far what I'm trying to give you is He will come to ordinary, regular people, call them to a mission. I'm calling you to this. And sometimes when He asks us, it's like, that's going to be hard. And the way that God's work is He's going to bring someone alongside you and they're going to speak into your life. They're going to encourage you in ways that will help you accomplish the mission God gives you. Affirming words, encouraging words, lifting your spirit. And God gets glorified. As Mary, you see with Mary, He gets the credit. He gets the glory. Now, that's the Christmas side story. And I'm going to jump over to Acts because where my heart is, I want you to see it starts with Christmas, but he will be a savior, he says to Mary. And how does it unfold? And we know Acts chapter 2, we see the birth of the church. We see it growing by thousands in Jerusalem. Previously on mission of Christmas, right? Going back and reminding you, uh, the church got stuck in Jerusalem. First half of Acts, it's growing it looks good. It has some challenges and struggles, but it's, it's a mega church, thousands in Jerusalem. But the, the great commission Jesus gave was go into all the world, all of it, not just Jerusalem. And it was stuck. You would think that a mega church could figure out how to accomplish the great commission, but they weren't. And last week, that's what we saw. God sent persecution. It forced people out of the city. But as they went, they wouldn't even talk to you about the gospel unless you were Jewish until they got to Antioch. And someone had the courage to cross over that cultural barrier and share their faith. And God used it to grow a church in Antioch of non-Jews. There were still some Jews in there, but primarily Gentiles, non-Jews. So what I want to do is show you that in that arc of the birth and growth of the church of Acts, there was an important figure that God used. And I'm going to take you to uh, Acts chapter 4. His name is Barnabas, another agent that God's going to send out to the mission, with a mission to accomplish 
what he wants. God's use of Barnabas in that gospel growth of the church through Acts. The first thing I want to give you is that God put him there at the very beginning of the church, the birth of the church. He's present at the birth of the church. Acts chapter 4, verse 32. I just want you to listen to the description of the church, what was going on, okay? It says, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, which is unity, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common, and with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Now let me just stop there and point out what a great picture of the church. Everything you would say should be in a healthy church was there. They had unity. They had great teaching. The apostles were, were preaching the resurrection of Christ. And they were meeting people's needs, not only spiritual, but physical. It says people who had sold, brought the money, and helped people who didn't have. They were caring one for each other. Great picture of the church. And then it, it gives you the name of one person, though, in this church. Verse 36, thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, I think that's important because what you're seeing is that God has, at the very beginning, put his, his agent of encouragement right there at the beginning of the church. I'm going to talk in a second about why we get to hear his name. Because there's other names, but we don't get them. He's not the only one that sold land to help. But here's the thing you should catch in this point. Because we think of encouragement, if it was an equation, we bring it over where there's discouragement. That's where you need encouragement. You bring encouragement when there's a need. But here in this moment, the church is prosperous. It, the, the church is doing great. I just told you it's a great picture. There's prosperity. And the thing, the truth we get from it is, even in prosperity, we need encouragement, which might sound weird to you, but there's a reason. But that's what we get, even in prosperity. Why? Well, later in the New Testament, I'm going to bring this over and give this to you. Hebrews 3 says we need daily exhortation. We need daily encouragement. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. There's something that is constantly working against joy, constantly working against faith and hope and love. You need it every day, encouragement, which says to you the ministry of encouragement, it often lasts only a day. And then you've got to keep at it. And here in this passage, he's saying the deceitfulness of sin within us. There's something within you, not just culture, who's going to cause you to doubt the goodness of God. You see what's going on, and inside of you the voice comes up. Why is God doing that? Why is God allowing that? And there's something to say that even in prosperity, we should be laying the groundwork for keeping ourselves stable for when times of discouragement come, when times of less come. We already know where our hope lies. There's an encouragement towards daily being reminded the thankfulness we should have for what God has done. Mary, it's a challenge, but just like Elizabeth said, you're blessed Blessed are you, even though God's calling you to something that seems incredible. How are you going to do it? And when God calls you to something, and remember our 
Thanksgiving message. In all circumstances, give thanks. There's just something outside of the church. It's in culture that grades against thankfulness and joy and gratitude. And there's something within us, a deceitfulness. You should not trust the goodness of God. You're being deceived. God is always good, all the time. God is good all the time? How do you know that? Well, it's a saying that we have in church. It's more than that. It's more than that. God puts Barnabas at the very beginning, the birth of the church. Secondly, I want you to see, God also places Barnabas in a position to affirm Paul's new mission. Acts chapter 9 says, and they were all afraid of him. That's Paul, not Barnabas. They were afraid of Paul. For they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them. And what I want you to see is the work of Barnabas and what he did for Paul. Not only does God place Barnabas at the birth of the church, but then he brings him over and he uses him in the life of Paul in a way that is unique and so important. Because Paul was a persecutor of the church. He's killing Christians. He's persecuting the church. Then he goes on a trip. Not many people are there. It's on a road, some, some road where there aren't a lot of people. And Jesus came, and Jesus talked to him. And now he's a, a believer. He's a follower of Christ. I mean, there's got to be some Christians who are like, this is a trick. We know who you are. He's going to use this story to get his way into the church. You know, write down names. going to know who we are. He's going to come after us. And Barnabas has to go and get Paul. He's got to bring him before the apostles. And God uses Barnabas to validate the calling, the mission that God had given to Paul. He says he took him to the apostles and declared to them that the story of the Damascus Road was true. And there's a way in which faithful service of encouragement over a lot of time gave him the leverage, the trust to stand before the apostles. Well, Barnabas, we trust and we know. And he's giving that to Paul. God used it. You see, God used the son of encouragement at the very beginning. Not just with words, but he gave money to the church to support it. God used the son of encouragement to help validate the mission and calling of Paul. And then God used Barnabas to support a new mission field. And that's where we get to our Acts 11, the Antioch church. And so in Acts 11, what we have, if you recall, says that... Uh, Men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists also, the crossing the cultural barrier, preaching the Lord Jesus. These anonymous servants, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Now verse 22, look what it says. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. First of all, like Elizabeth, he was spirit-filled, full of the Holy Spirit. Now, Antioch, these anonymous servants share about the gospel of Christ and the church is growing, and the word comes back to the mother church in Jerusalem. And they're like, Gentiles? Let's send Barnabas. Barnabas, he got a great track record. We trust him. And Barnabas goes to Antioch. He shows up, and he sees what's going on, and is good. And he becomes a supporter of this new mission field. So this is what I want you to catch. Antioch is going to become the most important church for accomplishing the Great Commission because the Jerusalem church is stuck. And the guy to lend 
influence and credibility to it is the son of encouragement. Again, a track record, uh, a good reputation has given him an opportunity to go and do that, to be part of that ministry. They sent Barnabas to Antioch. Let me show you one more. This is going to be in Acts 15. Standing with missionaries when they're under attack. That's the last thing I want to show you that God gives to Barnabas. And this is what happens because in Acts 11, uh, Barnabas is there. That Gentile church is going to grow. And then what happens is some, some Christians from the Jerusalem church are going to come over into that Antioch church and they're going to go, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. You got all these Gentiles in the church. Are they circumcised? You're skipping over an important part. They cannot be Christians unless they're circumcised. And that's going to spark perhaps the greatest and important debate in Acts because the church is, the church is going to struggle to complete the Great Commission. If you're going to go all over the world and make everyone in the world comply to an Old Testament standard. And so it comes back to that mother church, Jerusalem, in Acts chapter 15. This is, a, this is an important part of the entire Bible. It's the great debate of Acts 15. And in that moment, let me just read you a part of it. Acts chapter 15, it says, Some men came down to Judea, teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And then it says this, And Paul and Barnabas had no small dis dissension and debate with them. I love that. No small. It was not a small debate. It was a huge debate. Paul and Barnabas, we're going to take this on in the Antioch church. No, you can't bring that into the church. And then it was decided, it goes on to say, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the el elders about this question. So we, got it. We, we have respect for the Jerusalem church. It's where it all started. There's a debate now going on in our church, the Antioch church. Paul and Barnabas has taken it on. It says a group of them. They're going to go back. They're going to meet with the elders and the apostles of the church, the mother church. And we're going to settle this. It's got to be settled. But here's what I want you to notice. Two times already, Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas. A group went, but those are the two names you're given. A group went back, and it's Paul and Barnabas leading it. And they're going to stand up before the elders. They're going to stand up before the apostles. Now look what happens. It says this, And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul. Not Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas and Paul. Luke, who's writing this, flips the names. Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas. And let me tell you, Luke's a doctor. He is precise. Even his gospel, they're written with great specificity. He does not write things by accident. He has intentionally flipped their names. And the reason he has is because it is Paul and Barnabas. But now that they're coming back over here, Barnabas is going to stand up for the mission that God has called Paul to. Once again, he's going to leverage his reputation to stand next to God's missionary because he's under attack. Paul, you should be preaching circumcision. No, Barnabas says, he should not. And he helps Paul again. God's use of the son of encouragement is so important in the book of Acts to accomplish his mission. You see over here in the Christmas story, you have Mary, and she goes to Elizabeth, and God uses Elizabeth to affirm her, to encourage her, and it brings worship out of her. Over here, we see God using the son of encouragement, an agent for encouragement, to help meet physical needs by selling his land, to be there to encourage the birth of the church. And all along the way in Acts, God's using Barnabas to stand beside Paul, to go to a new mission, Antioch. God uses agents of encouragement to accomplish his mission. They go hand in hand to take the ordinary people that he's going to call 
to do the mission and give them people to encourage them to accomplish that mission. Now, there's one other agent. I've given you Elizabeth. I've given you Barnabas. And the last one I want to give you is you. We've got to bring it back to us in our church today. Agent of encouragement, you. How can you be a person of encouragement to what God is doing? That's the question I want you to think about, okay? And the answers come out of what we've learned today. The first thing I would say is you need to pursue being Spirit-filled. And see, in the Old Testament, remember, the Spirit would come and, and empower you spiritually to accomplish something, but it could also leave you. Now he, the Spirit permanently indwells you, but you can be filled with the Spirit. You can have a greater capacity of the Spirit working within you than others based upon your yielding to Him. You're not going to be that powerful, Spirit-filled, if you're a person who's constantly rejecting what the Word says. This is why Paul writes in Ephesians 5, I put it up there, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, he's contrasting two things there. If you drink too much wine, you can be drunk. And he says that's debauchery. But what he's getting at is control. You can be controlled by wine so that you're not very effective. That's not the control you want. I want you to be filled, not with wine, but filled with the Spirit such that the Spirit is guiding you. There's a control aspect. I don't know if you recall, but in our series on heaven, there was one part where we talked about what will it be like in heaven? What will our bodies be like? One of the things we talked about, there's no sin nature. Satan is gone. He's not sowing any seeds of dissension. There's not a culture of sin that presses in on us. And when we are in heaven, our bodies are in tune with the Spirit, 100%. That's one of the most glorious aspects, is to be in tune with God. Totally in line with the Spirit. And the reality is, is you don't have to wait. You don't. You can yield yourself to the Spirit. How do I know? Well, first of all, get into the Word of God. The Word of God will never be contradictory to the Spirit of God. Impossible. God is truth, and they're one. You put the Word of God in you, and you let the Spirit guide you to understand it. The Spirit is like that light. It's going to shine. It's going to help you see things spiritually. It's going to help you understand. It's going to give you discernment. That's what that 1 Corinthians passage was about. We don't have the Spirit of the world in us. We have the Spirit of God in us. No one knows the the thoughts of God, but the Spirit of God does, and He lives within us, and He helps us know what God wants. You don't have to wait till heaven. You want to be a person of encouragement, be Spirit-filled, like Elizabeth, who discerned. Shalom! Oh, my word, the baby jumped. I know what this is. Wow. You can be in tune with the Spirit as, as the Spirit gives you insight for how to encourage when to encourage, and why. So, number two, you need, to, you need to know the heart of an encourager, too. And what I said here was that an encourager points to others, not to self. And I think when you go back to that, this is what I said, I'm going to come back to this. So when you go back to that Acts chapter 4, the early church, and it, it highlights Barnabas. You're like, why Barnabas? Well, we see down the road why, but in that moment, why? There were other people who sold lands and gave. But Barnabas stood out. It's almost as if Luke in that moment was saying he was the giant of the encouragers, of the givers, because he elevated others. You don't become a giant by squashing other people down. You know what that means? You cannot be an encourager if you talk about yourself all the time. Self-centered people don't make great encouragers. You listen, and you let the Spirit work within you. And there are people who are like that. They just talk about themselves. They 
hog the conversation. They're not very good listeners. Good, the heart of an encourager puts others first. I'm going to listen to what this person has to say. And sometimes we get around people like, man, are they ever going to stop? But the heart of an encourager, they, the way they are a giant is by pointing to other people and lifting them up. What are their needs? And listening and in tune with them. That's the heart of an encourager. Be spirit-filled. Put others first. You can discern situations. Number three, who and where. And I, I notice a, a, a difference here. Mary went to Elizabeth. Elizabeth is like there. She comes into her house. Sometimes God is going to bring the person to you. They're going to cross your path. But with Barnabas and Paul, Barnabas had to go get Paul. I'm going to go get Paul, and I'm going to bring him to the apostles and stand with him. Sometimes you need one. Sometimes you need the other. But that's part of the discerning. Part of the discerning is God brought this person across my path or part of the discerning is, do I need to go find them? I've heard about something going on with this person. That happens all the time in this church. Sometimes people come to me. Have you heard? Have you heard about what's going on with this person? And sometimes I'm able to say, oh, I didn't know. Sometimes like, we already know. You know. But when we hear, maybe we need to go. A true encourager will do that. And then uh, just to add, you can encourage with words like Elizabeth, but you can also encourage with grace. Now, grace is a word in the New Testament that Paul uses over and over again that refers to money. Sometimes you need to give more than words. I'm reminded of uh, the interaction with Jesus in the Gospels where He says, I don't know you. Well, of course I know you. Well, where were you when I was hungry? Where were you when I was homeless, when I was sick, when I was ill? And it's like, well, when were you sick? When were you ill? When were you? You see, and Jesus says, if you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. And there's a point that's like this. If they are sick, if they are without shelter, if they are Whatever, you fill in the blank. The need is. Sometimes they need more than words. It doesn't go very far for you to go to them and say, hey, I hear you're really hungry. I'm going to pray for you. Hey, I heard you're sick. I'm going to pray for you. Sometimes we need to do more. And I read an author once who said, he, he kind of laid it out where it's like the response of the person who's always getting prayed for. I really appreciate your prayers for my hunger. I really appreciate your prayers for my homelessness. I really appreciate your prayers for my sickness. But I'm really cold. I'm really hungry. And I could use help. Sometimes we encourage with words. Sometimes with grace. And then lastly, I put here, there's really a need for this ministry today. I was thinking about when the New Testament describes the end of the world, you know one of the things it says? When we get closer to the end, people will become lovers of themselves. A narcissistic, self-centered culture that in and of itself would asphyxiate encouragers. Because encouragers cannot, this is why I already gave it to you, they can't be self-centered. They have to point to others. And if everything in our culture says, lift yourself up, you, we live in a culture that says, hold your opinions high. And you know what? Fight over them. You need to be acknowledged for whatever your grievances are. Over and over again, we center everything on us. And the Bible's like the opposite of that. The, what Christ did is the opposite of that. Christ gave up everything for you. We need this ministry perhaps now more than ever since the birth of the church, because our culture is so anti-encouragement. And where is the missionary today who's only successful because God sent a Barnabas to them? You already saw how important they were to the mission of Christmas, and you already saw how important they were to the mission of, of the gospel in the book of Acts. What about today? We need a Barnabas. We need an Elizabeth. We need encouragers 
And I would challenge you to think about, first of all, how you in your personal life can be better at encouraging others. And then secondly, maybe to, to be called in a way that's unique, like an Elizabeth or a Barnabas, because their uniqueness is they are, they are attached directly to some type of mission that God had given to someone to lift them up, to affirm them, or to provide for their mission in a way that they need. That's what God is calling us to today, but also in this Christmas season. And I'll just finish with just a reminder, the mission of Christmas, she will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Father, thank you for this Christmas story, for how we see it, the principles in it, and they work forward into the book of Acts. He will be a Savior. Well, you gave that mission to ordinary Mary, but then you brought alongside her a great encourager in Elizabeth. You gave that a mission to, to Paul to go into the world to reach Gentiles. In fact, you specifically said, I'm going to use Paul to reach the Gentiles. That's a new mission. That's a new mission field. And you laid beside him support in the form of the son of encouragement, Barnabas, who stood beside him at first when he brought him to the apostles, who stood beside him in Acts 15 at the great debate where he had to step forward and it went Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas to Barnabas and Paul. He had to, to be the front guy, to give credibility to Paul's calling. Lord, we need Elizabeth. We need Barnabas in our church, in our world today, in the missions that you are giving to people. And I ask that you would grow that. I ask that you would grow it right out of our church. You continue to use our church in a way to be a blessing to others, to be an encouragement to others, and see the gospel continue to grow. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand and we'll worship together as we finish our service.